off and the clock has started. Here we go. Welcome to 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. I am Doug Prezak, or just Doug to you, my my dear friends. You notice I don't have an announcer? <laughs> I don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> Everybody left. Speaking of you, my friends, hey, the last episode was, for the most part, just listened to by the show regulars. Australia, uh, Washington, D.C., Chile, Sweden, Thailand, Germany, and, of course, Trinidad, Tobago. <laughs> They're still listening. I love it. The only new U.S. cities that downloaded the show were Garden Grove, California, and North Hollywood. That's right, Hollywood. I've heard through the grapevine that the studio execs there are considering making a TV series about this very show. (laughs) All right, that's not true. But hey, Hollywood, I am available. (laughs) Let's just get on with it, okay? Hey, in case you didn't hear, we here in the United States of America had a little football contest a few days ago. It's been reported that the game was seen across the globe. I'm I'm really not sure how much of the globe really cared about San Francisco or Kansas City. They may have cared about that uh, singer that was there, but that's irrelevant to this podcast. If you did watch the game, then there's no doubt whatsoever in my mind that you had some food or snacks nearby. On the East Coast uh, of the United States, the game was at 6.30 p.m., Kind of a dinner time thing for you. And here on the left coast, the game started at 3.30. Now, that time of day is the golden time for snacking, okay? You know, you're done with lunch. Dinner is still a few hours away. The game is starting up, and now it's time to get some uh, libations going. You know, not that I didn't have a couple, but I did. And you want a snack. And that, my friends, is where the rest of these 20 minutes are heading. Did you munch on some, uh, you know, buffalo wings? Or Well, how did those start? <laughs> what about that seven-layer dip and those little smokies? You know, come on, you know, little bits of barbecue sauce-covered gold. That's what those things are. So let's dig in. I can't say, you know, football-watching snacks because, well, football is over. So I'll say here's some education about sporting event-watching snacks. <laughs> I don't have time for, uh, you know, everything you may have encountered last Sunday during the uh, big game. So I picked out a few of my favorites because, well, you know, it's my podcast. So I present to you the history of some sporting events watching snacks. (laughs) We're going to start this episode with a little bit of controversy because, you know, it's been a while since we've had one here in the show. (laughs) It's the history of buffalo chicken wings. Now, back in the 1960s, a black restaurateur named John Young opened Wings and Things in Buffalo, New York. Around the same time, a white couple named Frank and Teresa Bellissimo, they began selling chicken wings at the Anchor Bar about a mile away from Wings and Things. By the 1980s, the Bellissimos had become famous for supposedly inventing buffalo wings. Yet in recent years, local historians looking back at the history of the dish have drawn attention to the contributions of John Young. If we go back to the early origins of buffalo wings, well, Chicken wings have had a place in both restaurant and home cooking for you know a long time. In Buffalo, the oldest known establishment to serve chicken wings is the Clarendon Hotel. And a copy of the hotel's menu from July 1st, 1857 lists an entree called chicken wings, fried. <laughs> this is putting it right out there. But chicken wings were not just an entree in Buffalo. In the 1960s, the black-owned Washington, D.C. restaurant Wings N Things, that's uh, with an N instead of and, Wings N Things, was serving chicken wings in a mumbo sauce. The sauce has its roots in Chicago 
and has since actually become associated with Washington, D.C. This sauce may have also inspired Jung Young when he began serving wings at the Wings and Things restaurant in Buffalo in the 1960s. Now, at some point in the mid-60s, the Bellissimos start offering their own version of the chicken wings at their Anchor Bar. Unlike Young's wings, Anchor Bar's chicken wings were fried, broken into pieces, and tossed in a hot sauce. It's a recipe that buffalo wings today mostly uh, resemble. The dish took off, and in the 70s and 80s, it was the Bellissimos who received the most credit for inventing the buffalo wing. Now, early media coverage of the buffalo wing focused on Frank and Teresa Bellissimo. Calvin Trillin published an article in the New Yorker in 1980 on the history of the buffalo wings. Trillin also interviewed John Young for his story, reporting that Young contested the narrative that the Anchor Bar was the first to sell wings in Buffalo. Young's advocacy helped him secure recognition as the first person to open a Buffalo restaurant centered around chicken wings. During the 1970s, more restaurants in Buffalo began to serve their own wings, mostly following the Anchor Bar recipe of fried pieces tossed in a hot sauce. So there you go. Nobody really knows. But they're still called Buffalo Chicken Wings. Okay, controversy is over. I'll let you decide who started the Buffalo Wings. Personally, I prefer them teriyaki style. (laughs) But we move on to uh, the seven-layer dip. Now, who doesn't like a good seven-layer dip and who put those layers together. <laughs> we start in 1982 in Grapevine, Texas, where resident Peggy Shoup adapted a dish that transformed party history forever. <laughs> she took a recipe for dip she found in Southern Living that layered sour cream, guacamole, salsa, and cheese, and then she added her own additions of refried beans and jalapenos. Her dip had seven layers, but she still called it a six-layer dip. <laughs> time out, time out, time out. Let's just count this up, okay? The first one had sour cream, one, guacamole, two, salsa, three, cheese, four, and then she added refried beans, five, and jalapenos, six. You can't call it seven-layer dip. It's got six layers. Come on. So, <laughs> so there you go. Oh, come on. You know there's more controversy. That's right. Research showed layer dips were popular elsewhere, but most evidence points to Dallas as the origin. Whether this is fact has been lost to the cookbooks of time, but looking at other sources, it shows Shoup as the first cook to share this creation in a publication, no matter if somebody else invented it before her. If you've never had it, well, (laughs) it's seven layers, sometimes six. Uh, It's a stack of dips, which typically includes a base of refried beans or bean dip, and then layers of guacamole, sour cream, salsa, tomatoes, jalapenos, green onions, shredded cheese, and black olives as the most common ingredients. <laughs> That's way more than seven layers. Some people plop so many different levels into one big old dish that the dip becomes a jumbled mess. Now, whether it's a five-layer dip, a six-layer dip, seven-layer, nine-layer dip, whatever layer dip, you got to know <laughs> tortilla chips aren't that strong and that eventually will lead to the inevitable breaking of the chip seven-layer dip floor flop. (laughs) That comes from personal experience of having the chip break and then looking down at the floor. (laughs) Now that you've cleaned up the floor, you'll sometimes see these party snack things on the table, deviled eggs. Now, I've noticed that there is no in-between in this one. Either you love them or you hate them. 
Well, the dilemma goes way back to like ancient Rome. Romans served deviled eggs, often referred to as ab ova usque ad mala, which means from eggs to apples, or meaning from the beginning of the meal to the end. Boiled eggs were seasoned with spicy sauces and then served as a starter of a fancy meal usually made for guests. Serving eggs while entertaining guests was common for wealthy Romans. By the 13th century, stuffed eggs began popping up in the region we now know as Spain. They would mix boiled egg yolks with cilantro, some spices, and a sauce made of fermented barley or fish, <laughs> oil, and salt. That is just yummy right there. <laughs> the mixture was stuffed into hollowed-out egg whites, and the two halves of the egg were fastened together with a small stick. By the 15th century, stuffed eggs grew in popularity across Europe. Boiled eggs were filled with raisins. Oh, it just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Cheese and herbs like parsley and mint, and then fried and topped with a sauce or powdered sugar. <laughs> I clearly would not have survived the 15th century. <laughs> the word devil as a culinary word appeared in Great Britain in the writing for the first time in 1786, referencing heavily spiced, hot, fried, or boiled dishes. By the 1800s, deviling became a verb to describe the process of making food spicy. In other places, many people use the terms uh, mimosa eggs or stuffed eggs or salad eggs to describe the dish to avoid any association with Satan. <laughs> Fanny Farmer's Boston Cooking School Cookbook, <laughs> I can say that fast, Fanny Farmer's Boston Cooking School Cookbook in 1896 suggested using mayonnaise in the filling of their deviled egg recipe to serve as a glue, and they were the first ones to do so. And the tradition continues to this very day, and people still like them or hate them. <laughs> I think it's time for a break. When we come back, yeah, I've got more snack uh, history for you. Don't go away. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy, the chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. How about we get back into it? Now, what Super Bowl party, I mean, what sporting event party wouldn't be complete without guacamole? And people, please, it's pronounced guacamole, not guacamole. I have heard somebody call it guacamole. <laughs> anyway, who decided it would be a good idea to smash up some avocados and then uh, add them some spices and then grab a bag of chips? Who came up with that one? The avocado origins start in south-central Mexico, where it grows naturally. And for this reason, guacamole was created by the Aztecs who inhabited the region. Now, the nutritional aspects of avocado, and there are many, it's very good for you. Well, they were unknown to the Aztecs and the Spaniards, but they were aware that there were health benefits. In fact, many believed that the dish and avocados in general were aphrodisiacs. The origin of the word avocado also has an uh, interesting backstory. Originally, the Aztec word for avocado was ahucadi, 
which actually means testicle. Oh, get over it. It's unknown whether that name came from the way the avocado hangs from the tree in in pears, or it was a reference to the aphrodisiac quality of the food. The word guacamole is also related to the Aztec word for avocado. Ahucamole is the Aztec name for guacamole. It's a compound of the Aztec word for avocado and the word for sauce. Sometime during the 1500s, the Spaniards were introduced to the avocado mixture, and they thought that the treat would be a big hit back home. The Spaniards tried to recreate guacamole in Spain, but unfortunately, avocados don't grow naturally there. So they tried to use substitutes, and uh, let's just say that didn't end well. Now, believe it or not, but please do, it was only about 25 to 30 years ago that the avocado was almost unknown in American households. The U.S. received no imports of avocados because back in 1914, Mexican avocados were banned from being imported into the United States. This was mostly due to American fears that the pest infestations from Mexico fruit would hurt the U.S. growers. But in 1994, that's 80 years after the ban and against the protests by the California avocado producers, the North American Free Trade Agreement opened the doors to the world's biggest producer of avocados to import the fruit into the U.S. An Orange County Register article in 1997 said Mexican imports of avocados were allowed in the northeastern states, but only during the winter months. This was limited to the winter with the idea that it would keep any potential pests away from the avocado grows in California. Imported avocado sales increased until it was nationwide by 2007. Of course, the California avocado growers were worried when Mexican avocado imports were allowed in. They feared prices of the avocados would fall. But that didn't happen. Instead, the increased supply actually increased the appeal of the avocado and it became more popular and so more in demand. And here is your official stupid fact for the day. Around 3 million photos of avocados and guacamole are posted each day on Instagram. (laughs) I didn't do it. And sticking with the Hispanic theme, nachos have kind of a fascinating history. The chip and cheese pile had its humble beginnings in a small Mexican border town called Piedras Negras, which is a little town located in the northern Mexican state of Coahuila, which is situated just across the border from Eagle Pass, Texas. The story of nachos can be traced back to 1940 in a restaurant known as the Victory Club in Piedras Negras. The head of the kitchen was a creative and very resourceful chef named Ignacio Anaya, and he was affectionately known as Nacho by his friends and patrons. I think you can see where this is going. (laughs) One fateful day, a group of American military wives crossed the border to Piedras Negras, and unfortunately, they found that their intended restaurant was closed. They continued their search for something to eat, and they ended up at the Victory Club where Nacho and Naya was working. In a stroke of culinary genius, Nacho decided to whip up something special for his unexpected guests. He took some crispy tortilla chips and covered them with freshly grated cheese and he added some sliced jalapeno peppers for a kick of spice. The result was an instant hit and Nacho aptly named his dish Nacho's Special. Word of Nacho's creation quickly spread and soon it became not only a hit in Piedra Negras but also in neighboring Texas. Soon after that, the dish crossed international borders and the apostrophe was dropped to simply become Nacho's. 
nachos gained immense popularity in the U.S., becoming a staple at sporting events, movie theaters, and Tex-Mex restaurants. Enjoy your nachos. Now we're heading into one of my favorite snack foods, okay? Long before Oscar Mayer smoked his first little sausage, <laughs> there were cocktail weenies. You know, the kind that had to be fished out of a can with toothpicks? The weenies' origins haven't been well documented, but the first instance of a cocktail wiener in print was from 1934 in an ad in the Sioux City Journal that promised, quote, something new in meat, end quote. <laughs> the something new traveled fast. By 1937, ads for cocktail wieners were showing up in papers across the country. After a few decades of study and innovation, the smoked weenie was born. The weenie name was ditched and smoky was used to emphasize the smoked nature. Ads for Little Smokies started appearing around 1950 with Jones Dairy Farm, Oscar Mayer, and Stark and Wetzel all jockeying for the miniature meat market share. <laughs> In 1984, Hillshire Farm started running ads for Little Smokies, spelled L-I-T apostrophe L, Little Smokies, an attempt to differentiate the branding and create a trademark. I say, who cares? Open a package, dump it in a bowl, pour on some barbecue sauce, and put it in the microwave for two minutes. That's heaven, my friends. And speaking of Little Smokies, uh, my favorite Super Bowl party snack, or any party for that matter, it's the humble pig in a blanket. Let's start here. Pigs in a blanket may be as old as the 1600s. I think I had one of those at a party one time. Despite rumors that it is an invention as modern as 1957, Field laborers in the 1600s in England had what was essentially the same item. They would put meat inside of dough as a solution for a quick meal on the go. The earliest written record of the modern pig-in-a-blanket dish is in Betty Crocker's Cooking for Kids, which was published in 1957. However, there are various personal testimonies claiming to have enjoyed the dish before the book's publication. There is a trucker legend that puts its creation at an even later date, sometime in the 1960s, attributing its creation to a diner along Route 66 in Oklahoma. Still, other legends attribute its creation to the Far East, claiming Asian cultures put the fish in a similar role. The legend claims that Americans copied the dish with hot dogs and biscuits after the fact. Now, if you're one of the three people in the world who doesn't know what pig in a blanket is, well, here in America... It's a mini sausage, or the previously discussed Little Smoky, wrapped in biscuit dough. But as for the rest of the world and their sporting event parties, in Germany, the meaty snack is affectionately known as Wursten im Schlafrock, or sausage in a dressing gown. <laughs> That's cool. And it also has sausage wrapped in a puff pastry with cheese often added into the mix. Mexican pigs in a blanket are sausages wrapped in tortillas and deep fried in vegetable oil, and they're known as salchitacos, which basically is a mishmash of the word salchicha or sausage and taco. In Israel, pigs in a blanket are typically referred to as Moisha Bitaiva. <laughs> I apologize to my Jewish friends. Moisha Bitaiva or Moses in the Ark. Like the American version, their festive snack has a puff pastry rolled over kosher hot dogs, and they're typically served with ketchup. No, barbecue sauce. China's pig-in-a-blanket equivalent is known as lap chong bao, 
which is a pastry encased sausage, which is steamed rather than baked. And then there's the UK. They're rather alone in their culinary tradition. It seems their pig in a blanket is basically pig in a pig. Instead of a pastry blanket, they wrap their cocktail sausage in bacon. Now, personally, I don't find anything wrong with a greasy bacon blanket. But one particular British food critic had a very strong opinion on the phrase pigs in a blanket. In 2020, the New York Times posted about the American dough-wrapped pigs in a blanket on that uh, Twitter X thing. Uh, and I quote, pigs in a blanket are the Tom Hanks of party snacks, universally beloved, unassuming, inoffensive, and yet somehow still a joy to behold. Well, the British food critic who shall remain unnamed responded, and again, I quote, and this is all in caps, by the way, so you know he's pissed off. Quote, those are not pigs in a blanket. They're bloody sausage rolls. Oh, my God. <laughs> so apparently we're not supposed to be putting dough around our little smokies, all right? Let me look at the clock here. Yeah, I am officially in overtime, kind of like the Super Bowl 58. And my snack tray is now just a pile of chip crumbs. So it's time to wrap this thing up, much like a pig in a blanket. You hear that, UK? It's in a blanket. <laughs> but first, what have we learned? Well, we learned that when watching sports, whether on TV or in person, something goes off in our head that we must snack. <laughs> it's the law. We learned that if you like nachos, then you can thank Ignacio Nacho Anaya. <laughs> Sounds like a great wrestler name, doesn't it? And we learned that if you're in the UK and you order pigs in a blanket, be prepared for a sausage wrapped in bacon. And do not, under any circumstance, ask, where's the blanket? <laughs> That's it for this show, and that's it for me, and I'll talk to you next time. On 20 Minutes, you'll never get back. Bye-bye. Mmm, little Smokies. I'm so hungry. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted... All you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at uh, 20MYNGB, 20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, if you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the uh, website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com. And uh, you can uh, leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take, take a look at those two things if you'd like and stay informed. And I'll, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes. You'll never get back. Bye-bye.